You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy. Welcome to 21st Century Radio. I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. Laura Kortner is our executive producer and Anita Brockington, our engineer. The world has spoken for centuries in all traditions about doing good as the wisest way to personal well-being, soulful peace, and community harmony. Our guest this hour, Dr. Stephen G. Post, has not just lived this truth, but has been fascinated enough by the science of giving and the commitment to a greater good that he has promoted the idea of, quote, give and live better, unquote, across the globe, funding over 50 scientific studies at the nation's top universities, as well as conducting his own research. Dr. Stephen Post is considered the go-to guy with his uplifting message that when we contribute to the lives of others, give meaningfully, and live by the golden rule, we are generally happier, healthier, resilient, creative, hopeful, and successful. Dr. Post is the lead author of Why Good Things Happen to Good People, How to Live a Longer, Happier Life by the Simple Act of Giving. He is as well the founding director of the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love and the founding director of the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics at Stony Brook University in New York. His newest book, God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Interconnectedness, is a superb addition to the world's consciousness library, and it was a joy to read, as I did, in short sessions for many nights in a row at 2 a.m. in the morning when I often wake after several hours of sleep. It was a wonderful between-sleep journey in which I rode cars, trucks, buses, trains, motorcycles, and planes, and followed a pilgrimage trail of post-life from synchronicity to synchronicity, from New Hampshire to Long Island to Ohio to California to Portland, Oregon, and back again to the East Coast. What a pleasure to share some airtime with you, Stephen. Thank you, Zoe. It's such a delight to be with you. Well, like I said in the introduction, your book was, I've never read a book in that fashion, and it was a joy Your odyssey begins at the age of 19, an inward calling, I guess what we could say to an outward journey, but your journey, like all of us, begins in childhood. And I thought, as you share with the reader, it'd be good with our listeners to learn a little bit about your own home life growing up and the people like the Mullers who help shape your awareness of what it means to love, to give, and to be of service. Oh, sure. Well, I grew up on a lonely road. It was called Oak Neck Lane in West Islip, Long Island. There weren't many other houses around. When I would be sitting, uh, my mom would stop by and she'd say, Stevie, why don't you go out and help somebody? And down the road, about a half a mile, there was an elderly couple, Mr. and Mrs. Carl Muller. I would go there. uh, I would rake the leaves. I would rake up. uh, I would uh, shovel the snow. I would do a little painting with Mr. Muller. And uh, every time I did that, I always felt uh, elated and I would go home feeling well. So uh, they became mentors to me. They were wonderful people. Uh, Mr. Muller taught me to be a fairly good carpenter. uh, And we even would uh, burn uh, passages from Robert Frost or from uh, the Bible. He was a Presbyterian a passage like God loves a cheerful giver, varnish the spruce, and then we would tack it up on the trees in the forest behind his house. And so that it was quite an experience to walk down those pathways. But uh, Mr. Muller was a huge influence. He was very prayerful. 
and uh, he was really the source of much of my peace and 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 uh, role modeling when I was a boy. And and that shows up in the book. And the reason I thought it important to share is oftentimes. We as adults don't necessarily understand the impact we have on young people, even if it's not an everyday relationship. But your journey begins, as described in your book, Beyond That, with an experience you had while a student at St. Paul's Boarding School, um, and it involved a blue angel. So why don't we start there and tell us why you say this was not a usual type of dream. I went up to St. Paul's. I was 13 at the time. It was a wonderful place for me. I loved it. The architecture was great. I loved the natural setting. The, the autumn leaves were phenomenal. Uh, when I was 15, I had a dream, and it was a dream early in the morning. It was not quite feeling like I was asleep, but also not quite feeling like I was awake. It was kind of betwixt and between. Uh, and uh, it was a short uh, dream, but it was vivid. And I wasn't much of a dreamer, so this kind of stuck with me. Uh, but basically, uh, I, I would see a gray, silvery mist uh, on a road somewhere headed out toward the unknown west. That was an un intuitive aspect of the dream. Uh, and then I was walking by a ledge uh, over the sea, and there was some young person with stringy blonde hair leaning outwards, looking like he was ready to jump. Uh, and then uh, the, the, the mist disappeared, and there was a blue angel uh, that, ap that appeared. Uh, and in a feminine voice, it said, if you save him, you too shall live. And uh, then the, the angel faded away. Uh, so this was a, a dream that fascinated me. Uh, you know, I had a wonderful sacred studies at, uh, teacher at the time. His name was Reverend Rod Wells, and he was a Yale Div graduate, and uh, he really was a great mentor for me. He's fantastic. Uh, and he was a good friend of Alan Watts, who was a, a, a Buddhist Episcopalian out on the West Coast. And I would talk about this dream in Rod's class with some of my uh, peers. Uh, they weren't quite sure what to make of it. And then one day when I was 16, Rod actually uh, drove me down from Concord, New Hampshire to New Haven for the first time uh, uh, down Prospect Street and we went to uh, Yale Div School and I actually spent about three hours with a classroom of 14 or 15 Divinity School students uh, there. The teacher was a well-known Jungian uh, psychologist of religion named James Diddies and uh, they asked me about the dream and I, I gave them the best answers I could and it was a wonderful moment. No, you're blessed. I mean, and the fact that there were so many Jungians that sort of came and wove in and out of your life, um, for any of us who have, you know, been touched by Jung's understanding of synchronicity, which is a big theme in your life and in your teachings and in your story. I, I came across one of the mentions you made of when you were a kid, um, and you got the name boy from your coach, that you ran cross-country and um, you did cross-country skiing in high school. And I just wanted to know, because you didn't talk about it much, what you experienced in an in inward way from that. Because it really seems like those sports at some point, you know, put you into theta. And at some point, you're not running. You're just the run. There's a lot of truth to that. I love being out of doors in nature. I was not a big team sports player. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, uh, my definition of hockey, which was the big sport up there, 
was uh, wanton violence interrupted by a lot of whistles and protracted <laughs> meetings. I'm just, I say that with a smile, you know. Uh-huh. So I, I didn't make the hockey games. Everybody else did. But I was out running in the woods. And, and I was also, I had a great friend named Ned Perkins, uh, who's uh, actually his grandfather was Maxwell Perkins, who was the editor for F. Scott Fitzgerald at Scribner's. And uh, Ned used to call me a peripatetic road duck because I would be walking around a lot of times. I did some long walking and hiking with uh, philosophical books, spiritual books. And he was wondering if one day I would get run over or not. You talk about the journey um, as really this inward calling. And as you shared with our listeners, the Blue Angel said to you, if you save him, you you too shall live. And I love the fact that as you encountered this dream as a physical manifestation through Mark Chagall's paintings that you also shared a little bit about how your life and his um, have some parallel components. Well, you know, it's, it's, that's a really important piece of this story because um, eventually, I guess like all blue angel dreamers, uh, I, I left a scientific career and I wound up at the university of Chicago divinity school studying with people like Mercia Eliade and even Joseph Campbell for a year. Um, but, you, you know, um, Chagall was so important to me. At, at, at a certain point in the journey, uh, I, you know, after I got through with Chicago, I was in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the medical school for two years. Uh, then I was living in Terrytown, New York, and I was teaching at the Marymount Fordham campus, which was up on a beautiful hill looking down over what was then called the Tappan Zee Bridge. I had an office mate named Gabe Gomez, who was a great well-known historian of all the world's spiritualities and religions. And he asked me, so how did you really get into all of this? And I told him about my blue angel dream about going to Yale Divinity School and a whole lot of other things. And he said, you have to walk around the reservoir. It's about a 10-minute walk and go to Peconico Hills, which is an enclave where the Rockefeller family uh, had its uh, housing, and go to the Union Church. And I went into the Union Church, and there it was. The whole back of that church, thanks to uh, Nelson Rockefeller, who was a modern art uh, guru in a lot of ways, uh, it was a big, huge Chagall blue window of the Good Samaritan. This intrigued me because I saw the Jungian symbols. There were symbols from every possible tradition. And Chagall had this idea about an age of true inner spiritual peace that hadn't yet arrived, but that would eventually arrive after some difficult times. So um, I got so intrigued with Chagall, and I I began to read about Chagall. And what I discovered, this was a complete shock to me, um, was that, like me, he had also taken off from home when he was about 17 uh, in a way that really uh, mystified his family. Uh, he'd been working in a in a uh, factory that pickled herrings in a small city in Russia. Uh, his dad wanted him to continue the tradition, but he felt an urge to go elsewhere. And he actually ran off to St. Petersburg, lived on the streets. Uh, he sketched for a living for a little while. He hadn't painted yet. And then lo and behold, as he describes in a book he wrote called My Life, he wrote it maybe 15 years after the event, um, he was in an alleyway with a little bit of a lean-to roof. There's a big, heavy construction worker on the same mattress uh, as Chagall. And uh, 
he's not sure if he's awake or asleep, but suddenly the whole alleyway fills with a bright blue light. He's mystified by it, and then he sees the fluttering uh, wings of an angel. Uh, the angel ascends, leaving the light behind, and the, the next day he painted that first great painting in blue called The Apparition, um, and all the rest of his life he painted uh, incredible blue angels. If you go to the Art Institute in Chicago or look at the UN windows, it's all there. And even when he when he died, he was in his studio outside of Paris, um, and he was painting a blue angel. And Picasso said, you know, there's something strange about Chagall. He's got angels dancing around his brain. Yeah, I thought you'd find it amusing or interesting. Anyway, my daughter, who is now in her mid-30s, when she was a little toddler, had a little um, stuffed blue angel. And that was what she called it, my blue angel. Um, you know, synchronicities are an interesting phenomena. And as you trace your journey, which really to me is this pilgrimage to find out what the blue angel told you, you do end up eventually in California. And I'm, we won't take the time to tell our listeners all the various things that happened <laughs> in between. Um, you did live with a cousin who had served as a Green Beret in Vietnam and two tours. But share with our audience before the break, um, what actually happened to you and when that dream became a manifestation? Well, really briefly then, um, when I was 17, I had a summer job in the Bronx as a tutorer that uh, my teacher, Rod Wells, had gotten me. But my parents were frightened. They thought the Bronx was too dangerous. My dad was the president of W&J Sloan's department store on Fifth Avenue. So he and my mom really fiercely objected to this. They wouldn't let me do it. I was headed for Swarthmore. They said they wouldn't even cover, cover the bill. So um, uh, I said, well, what should I do? And my dad said, you can work in Bill de Bono's lampshade factory in Patchogue. That's kind of like the pickling factory of herring. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I spent, I spent two weeks cutting cardboard between two very large uh, – I, you know, I would say this with great respect, uh, Italian women, a lot of there's a lot of smoke in the place. There was no air conditioning. And I just one Friday night, I gave up. I took dad's 190 uh, Mercedes Benz, which was secondhand and had seen better days. I think he wanted that so he could bring us up to St. Paul's and look good. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but I drove out to West Hampton Beach and then with a couple of friends from school, about 11 at night, I decided, you know, I'm going to drive west and follow my dream. And um, it was a push. It wasn't just the pull, the lure of the dream, but it was the push of sort of the acrimony at home and not being happy with what I was doing. So I just drove that Mercedes. I drove it through the Midtown Tunnel. I drove it up the FDR. I drove across the George Washington Bridge, never having driven west of that bridge before. And I saw two signs. One said 95 South. The other said Route 80 West. Well, my dream said West. About five in the morning, I'm in the middle of Pennsylvania, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to turn around because my reputation is still in good shape and no one will know about this escapade. <laughs> but just as I thought about turning around, cars back in those days had generators. And when the generator went out, the entire car stopped. The light stopped immediately. The engine stopped. That's what happened. And I just got over to the right on the shoulder and here I was, all I could see, wheat fields, corn fields. This is out near Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. There was nothing there, no phone booths. So I took a piece of paper out of the glove compartment, and like uh, any reasonable adolescent might do, I wrote a note. It said, please return to 
Henry A. V. Post, my dad, uh, 44 <laughs> Davison Lane, West Islip, New York. And then it said um, the phone number and then um, from his uh, – it said to the Pennsylvania State Police on right. the top. Right, of course. And then, and, and, and then at the bottom it said from his son who no longer works in the lampshade factory. <laughs> This was a terrible note, and this is as much a confession as an inspiration. So I had my classical guitar, a copy of Siddhartha. Uh, you know, I was reading uh, a couple of other books at the time, and, and I just put my thumb out, and this big white truck came by, and a guy named Gary, who was dressed in country and western, flung the door open, and he said, where are you headed? And I said, west. He got me to Chicago, and I won't go through all the details, except that I did call my mother. Uh, I was in a VW microbus full of a few hippies and yeah. um, got out to Route 80 runs through Nebraska. So when we got to Lincoln, one of these very nice uh, young gals said, you've got to call your mom. So I called my mom collect and she said, Stevie, thank God you're alive. We can call off the Pinkertons. And I said, mom, you called the Pinkertons. Didn't you get my note? <laughs> Which was another <laughs> terrible thing. I mean, I mean, you know, and and and, uh, and and so we talked for a bit, and I and I I wanted to get cousin George's address. He was out in the Mission District of San Francisco, and I did get out to George's, and I spent the summer there playing Granados and Villalobos in Hispanic restaurants, and I joined the Nietzsche and Shoshu uh, Buddhist community. So that's where you chant Nam Yoho Renge Kyo, and it's really loud and powerful and mystical. I drew a bad draft number, so I called the people at Reed College because I turned them down. Right. And I said, look, I really need a school. So they let me in. We'll stop there, and then when we come back, we'll pick up the story. If you're just joining us, our guest is Dr. Stephen G. Post. His book, God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. It's a Mango 2019 release. Learn more at his website, Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-G, Post.com, as well as www.unlimitedloveinstitute.org. This is Dr. Larry Dawsey. I'm the author of the recent book, One Mind, How Our Individual Consciousness is Part of a Greater Mind and Why It Matters. I hope you'll listen often to 21st Century Radio. Dr. Zoharonymous talks about what matters. The subject matter is crucial. Our future may depend on it. And I hope you will follow me at my website, www.larrydawseymd.com. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. Brother Larry Dawsey, always on the uh, edge of the curve, as I like to say. If you're just tuning in, our guest is Dr. Stephen G. Post, his most recent book, God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness, a Mango 2019 release. Learn more at his website, stephengpost.com, Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, gpost.com, and www.unlimitedloveinstitute.org. All right, so before the break, Stephen, we stopped off in California. You're with your cousin George. You're hanging out. You're doing Buddhist chanting. You're, you're always busy doing something of service to others. Then what happens? Well, it's the first week of September. It's about 7 in the morning. I'm out on Market Street and Chenery. Uh, George lived on 4 Chenery Street. And uh, I'm there with people from the Buddhist community, including a wonderful old Japanese-American named Gus who'd been interned during the war. Uh, and uh, George was there. And I said goodbye. I took the Market Street bus uh, down to the Golden Gate Park. I walked across the park, which is a bit of a walk. It's about a 10-minute walk. 
and then I, I started to walk up the Golden Gate Bridge. Now, I, wasn't, I really had no idea about the relevance of the dream to my walking over the bridge, but the amazing thing was that uh, as I walked up the bridge toward the middle of the bridge, everything was silvery, gray, very heavy mist. You couldn't see more than about four feet in front of your nose. And I'm walking on the left walkway. Uh, there is um, a, a, a little bit of a fencing area. And I heard a little shuffling to the left. And I looked and I thought I saw uh, the outline of a youthful person with stringy blonde hair. And I thought, gee, that's kind of like my dream. And I looked at him. Uh, he was leaning out over over uh, the, the the water, uh, uh, high up. And I and I I told him. I said, I truly hope that you're not thinking about jumping. And he looked at me and angrily said, What's it to you? And he even quoted some Shakespeare Macbeth. I, I you know, life is empty nothingness. I told him that it sounded more realistic coming from him on that ledge than it did at Memorial <laughs> Hall at St. Paul's when we used to perform it. And 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 then I said, look, um, um, we're all on the ledge. You know, I'm on the ledge. You're on the ledge. I, I could be out there. You could be with me. Uh, you know, it's it. Life is difficult. And and we had a little conversation. I told him. I said, look, I don't want you to jump because I have the intuition that I came all the way out here. I had dreams as a 15 year old at St. Paul's. I had uh, an argument with my parents about. <laughs> about working in Bill de Bono's lampshade factory. I took the car and left it on the middle of in the middle of Pennsylvania on Route 80. Uh, it, by the way, did eventually get back. My dad had it towed and they fixed it in the shop. So that wasn't the end of the world. And I, and I said, look, um, uh, here I am and I think we should talk. So he was still very defiant. Then um, I said, well, look, I have something that I think can help you. So at the Nichiren Shoshu Buddhist temple, they had given me something called the Gahon Zone. And that's a, a Japanese Buddhist scroll. It's only about three feet long, and it's got some symbols on it, like one mind, kind of Larry Dossi's idea of the yeah. one mind, yeah. of interconnectedness. And Larry wrote the foreword to Route 80, so I'm so grateful to him. He's such a wonderful human being. We agree there. Uh, oh, yeah, he's incredible. And 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 and, and so I, I said, look, if you if you step over um uh this little fencing and 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 come here i will explain this scroll to you and i'll even give it to you but on a condition and i told him the condition was that uh he actually um uh, walk down the bridge toward the park uh walk across the park get the marcus street bus i gave him a note with little george's my cousin was called little george lamont little george's address on it and i said uh, you can sleep on the floor where I slept. George will take you down to the Nichiren Shoshu Buddhist temple, and hopefully you'll be okay. And uh, so I explained this all to him. Uh, we even chanted a little bit uh, over the over the bridge, and, and you know, with the water deep below, uh, we shook hands. His name was Harry, and believe it or not, uh, he decided. I told him, I said, if you if you take this scroll, it will give you the Best luck, you know, the Buddhists are big on sort of good luck and talismans and things. So so he, he went off and and uh, and I walked north on the bridge because I was going toward Reed College. He walked south, of course, because he's going into the city of San Francisco. Um, and I um, 
I just felt so good. I felt somehow that that this was supposed to happen. And what struck me, I remember that morning, I was I, I put my thumb out on the north side of the bridge, and a red pickup came along, and it was Dwayne Dill. Yep, my name's Dwayne Dill. Just D-I-L-L, like in Dill Pickle, and this is my wife Dorothy, and they got me mostly up to Oregon. But I remember um, feeling, you know, look, I had this dream when I was 15. Uh, so that was two years prior. And also it was 3,000 miles away. Yeah. And, and, and so somehow I, I felt that the mind, this is where I agree with Larry so much, the mind is really a mystery. It's just not entirely a matter of cells and tissue and, and a brain in this particular location, but it has this kind of non-local dimension and 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 these synchronicities these unbelievably uncanny occurrences in meetings can actually take place and that's all the work of a very cherishing whatever you want to call it supreme mind infinite mind ultimate reality uh but this unconditional love in the universe that could work this out in such an incredibly powerful way and as you and any of us who um are attentive to these synchronicities and pay attention to them when they occur, whether it's from a dream state to a waking state or somebody says something and then you remember something or you bump into somebody who you dreamt about. Um, as you point out, and I, I like the way you say it, that hope is being open to the surprises of graceful synchronicity that echo themes of connectedness, unquote. And that is really what your book talks about. And like Larry's book, In One Mind, it's just such a superb um, description of this process. It's a, You don't arrive. It's a journey that is always the journey. And the, and the gift that we're given and the grace, as you point out, is that if we follow this voice of spirit, things do work out. Things do work out. And, and as Larry uses the term, you have to be a noticer. You yeah. have to... I use the word whispers a lot. You have to be noticing these whispers and winks. And and if you do, if you just slow down enough and are attentive to these realities, you can really be uh, in lots of different ways uh, blessed and guided. And, and I feel like my whole life is an unfolding from this Blue Angel dream because, you know, I've taught at medical schools in Chicago and Arbor 20 years at Case Western Med. Yeah. I'm at Stony Brook now. I've, I, you know, I've, I've, I'm, I'm very, very grateful for my career and my life. Uh, and I've been able to integrate compassionate care in the humanities and medical education in a unique fashion. Uh, and work with the deeply forgetful and do all kinds of wonderful things. I have a great family, but all all along it's been this um, blue dream and 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 the kind of outline of it that I see uh, coming into my life in remarkable ways. Chagall became my my uh, companion. You know, <laughs> he was the person who who had the experience that was closest to my own. And and you also comment, Stephen, that your experience of saving Harry from suicide after that, that you never searched for meaning in your life, and it was the meaning and purpose of your life to follow the voice of spirit. I mean, that's what I call it, for lack of better words. And, you know, it's funny, I had a recent synchronicity when I was reading your book. I was, I've always been a big fan of Gandhi, and I posted something on Facebook about him and his his deliverance of when they asked him, how did you kick the British out of India? And his comment was, we didn't kick the British out of India, they left. And then went on to describe how they all became 
what they wanted to see in the world. Well, that next day I went somewhere and there was this beautiful weaving. And I said to the woman in whose store it was, I said, where's that made? And she said, it's in India from a guild of women who do it in honor of Gandhi. So, of course, I had to buy it. <laughs> and it, and it now is on That's top great. of my bed, and I feel like I have Gandhi's shield with me. And, you do. <laughs> but those, those, so to everybody in the listening audience, don't ever, you know, doubt that these things that happen in your life have a purpose because that's what you've spent your whole life enabling for other people to appreciate. And you talked about um, working with the deeply forgetful, and I found that to be a very stunning part of your work. Would, would you share a little bit about that with our listeners? Well, yeah. So, um, you know, my grandmother died of what was probable Alzheimer's disease, although they didn't call it that uh, in, in her day. And um, I would do some assisted oral feeding with her. And and I never assumed that she was gone. She was a husk. She was empty. She was a shell. I knew that her communication system was uh, imperiled. But I felt that underneath it all, she was there intact. Uh, and, and, and I could uh, somehow interact. And occasionally, talking about hope, being open to surprises when you're taking care of deeply forgetful people, that's what hope is. You just have to look for those moments when they reveal um, their continuing self-identity, and they do. So um, uh, I got to Case Western in 1988, and I spent a long time uh, working with this population, wrote books about them. Uh, and, and, uh, and to me, uh, one of the most astonishing uh, experiences was I went to a uh, – uh, uh, basically a geriatric psychiatric unit in Mount Vernon, Ohio, with a great neurologist friend named Joseph Michael Foley, an Irishman from Boston, wonderful guy. And uh, we went into this unit where um, they had a lot of folks with Down syndrome, but also they had aged into their 50s and 60s, so they had probable Alzheimer's. And the amazing thing was that there were these wonderful Hindu caregivers there, doctors and nurses, and they were so meticulous in their caring. And we asked them, why are you just so careful and so caring? And they said, namaste, which means I honor the divine in you and you honor the divine in us. And so they felt that still underneath it all, there was a, an eternal soul and, a, and an intact mind. Uh, and, 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 and so six years ago, I went to the Indian Institute for Advanced Studies in Bangalore, and, I, and we had a conference on the deeply forgetful, which is a phrase I've used over the years because I prefer it to dementia. And I was giving a talk uh, on this, and in walked uh, His Holiness and Richard Gere, because I guess His Holiness likes to come to the Indian Institute for uh, various events. And he, after I spoke, he put his hand down on the table and he said, you're right. Uh, there's no reason to value the consciousness of someone who is memory intact uh, more than someone who is deeply forgetful. And it was a beautiful moment because what he was saying, it's not rational, uh, it's not linear rationality that matters, but other forms of rationality and consciousness itself. And these are people who can still be loved and experience warmth and love colors and, and be creative in incredible ways. Uh, and, and so I've been a, a real uh, advocate of, of rethinking the, the place of spirituality and dignity in the lives of deeply forgetful people. Yeah, well, that's beautifully said. We're going to take our last break. 
of the hour. God and love on Route 80. I think somebody said, you're saying route. Why do you say route? Isn't that what the British say? Okay, we'll go to Route 80. <laughs> the Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness, a Mango 2019 release by Dr. Stephen G. Post. His website, www.steven, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-G, post.com, and www.unlimitedloveinstitute.org. Hello, this is Ralph Metzner, author of Overtones undercurrents, as well as other books, and you can learn more about me and my work at www.greenearthfound.org. You're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. One of our wonderful pioneers now on the other side helping us with all the angels to um, realize what I like, what Dr. Larry Dalsey said about our guest book. Stephen, I can't tell you the name because we're about to give away a copy, but Stephen G. Post is the author, and of it, um, Dossie said, Above all, this book indicates the kind of awareness that is required if we are to survive the challenges we face as a species, the awareness of our connectivity and unity with all else, the knowledge that our world is sacred, holy, and worth saving. Beautifully said. 410-922-6680. That's 410-WCBM680 or 1-800-922-6680. First caller who knows the title of the book that Stephen G. Post has just written, and it's a Mango 2019 release, will win a copy. And if you don't aren't the winner, because only one of the hundreds of thousands of people who listen to this at times, go buy it. It's, so we have a winner. God and Love on Route 80 is the title of the book. And um, I highly recommend. It's a beautiful journey and a real reminder of what is holy and sacred in each one of us and why we all matter. So coming back to some of the things that you've done in the world that are really have helped so many thousands of people, Stephen, is you founded the Unlimited Love Institute. Talk to us a bit about this institute, what you do, and why it's been so important. Well, I have to attribute uh, some of this to a wonderful mentor by the name of Sir John Templeton, who oh, was yeah. uh, an investor and a philanthropist. And and I had known him actually uh, since about 1990 when Larry Dossey uh, and, and I and Sir John uh, briefly encountered one another uh, at a conference outside of Dulles Airport in Washington. It was on spirituality and health. And then Larry had dinner with Sir John, and Sir John supported one of Larry's early conferences on this theme of the one mind. So Sir John was a very open-minded man, and uh, we just got along so well. And one day I was sitting in my office uh, at Case Western Medical School. It was uh, it was the summer of 2000, and I got a fax from Sir John, and it said, Stephen, we need to study the most incredible asset of love in the universe. And he said, not just human love, because it's kind of unreliable and myopic and it reverses itself and you can be unwise, but really uh, the experience of a higher love, of a divine love in the universe and how that transforms us and makes us able to do things that we otherwise couldn't do. So I faxed back, Sir John, what should we call it? And his response was, well, let's call it the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love. And then I thought about it. So here I am in a medical center, and there's a lot of hardcore 
um, scientists, most of whom take a materialistic metaphysic. Okay? Right, sure. And, 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 and so I, I had a little moment of trepidation, although I shouldn't have, and I faxed back to Sir John, Sir John, maybe we should call it the Institute for Creative Altruism, because that's a nice <laughs> sciencey word, you know, and not right. so much of a challenge. And he faxed back, no, I think unlimited love up to $8.9 million. And so I think I did what you would have done. I faxed back, Sir John, I love that language. It jumps right off the page. <laughs> what a great idea. <laughs> what a great, but he was so correct because suddenly I was interacting with Pastor Otis Moss, uh, a great mentor of Oprah who ran a, a Institutional Baptist Church in Cleveland, and all these wonderful people, Matthew Ricard, and all the spiritual people really embraced the language of love. They wanted the science, but they wanted the love too. And so it really worked out, and we were able to fund a lot of programs. We had conferences, uh, uh, one with uh, people coming from 40 countries, over a thousand people, scientists, and then spiritual practitioners. We had a conference at MIT where uh, Jean Vanier. Uh, came uh, and and Dame Cicely Saunders, uh, incredible exemplars of this sort of behavior who were deeply spiritually uh, motivated, and um, and and this has worked out really well, uh, and I've enjoyed it. But it's not my day job is working in medical schools and teaching communication skills and and medical humanism and trying to get the healthcare. Uh, future more in line with compassion and love, mm-hmm. uh, but but my institute is a separate entity, and it's it's the love of my life. Oh, what a what a blessing for the world! And as you and many others have proven, that there is a link, and that's why your writings are so important. Um, that there is a link between, let's just call it longevity, and volunteering. Um, that really there is a physiological reality and benefit. To giving selflessly. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, you know, we we funded and we we conducted a, a lot of the early research uh, on this topic. So I came out with a book uh, with a very nice, popular science writer uh, helping me, named Jill Nemark, and it's called "Why Good Things Happen to Good People: How to Live a Happier, Healthier, and Longer Life Through the Simple Act of Giving," and. All, you know, this is being utilized so well now. You find that that volunteering is being recommended in adolescent psychiatric clinics because a lot of these young guys, you know, they they're they're so empty on the inside, and that's why they're doing some of the terrible and horrendous things they're doing. They're yeah. they're living on the edge. So so we want them to be involved in in meaningful activities. Uh, this is being operationalized in geriatric uh, clinics where older adults tend to live longer and they're shielded from depression if they're actually involved in helping and contributing in, in neighborhoods. That's why you see so many of these programs in assisted living centers, uh, in, 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 in mended hearts organizations where people who have had heart surgery uh, help new patients who are really anxious about what they're undergoing. Uh, in AA, of course, the 12th step, which we've written a lot about, is uh, helping others with your difficulty. So this is uh, a thing that in general benefits people and um, uh, it makes them feel more resilient. Uh, it makes them feel happier. It makes them uh, sleep better. They express that they have deeper friendships. So when you get right down to it, if you follow the positive golden rule, you know, do unto others, contribute to the lives of others, and don't just focus on the self and the problems of the self, 
you, you know, you're not losing yourself, you're actually gaining a deeper self. Sir John used to say, in the giving of self lies the unsought for discovery of a deeper self. Mm-hmm. Very true. It's very true. You know, in, in the Western mystery tradition, of course, service is one of the primary pillars of the teachings. And in, you know, when you go back to Mark Chagall, who we both are fans of, your life has been touched in a much more profound way than my own. But as a student of the Hasidic mysteries, mm-hmm. uh, it's all about giving. And that we're, and the way it's said in, in the Jewish teachings in the Mishnah is that we're not born for ourselves alone, we're born for the world. And when we kind of get out of our way and get out of the lower ego and reach for the divinity outside of ourselves, we are able then to engage in the divinity within ourselves. Very much. We have to get in touch with our being, as they say. And that's the source of these higher emotions of forgiveness in difficult times, compassion, um, all of these things, spirituality, uh, even intense creativity. I love the story of uh, the Indian mathematician uh, who was receiving these incredible formulas as he was praying at the foot of his uh, goddess. This is Ramanujan. And his notebooks, which he would write after he would put these uh, printings in the dirt next to him with his finger, uh, they are at the center of uh, uh, Trinity College, Cambridge. And they're the the baseline of quantum physics. And so I was asking Paul Davies, uh, and, and others who have been at Trinity uh, uh, about this, and and absolutely, I mean, he never proved his his formulas, but they turned out to be true. And so, where's that coming from? Right, exactly. Infinite mind, divine mind. You know, the mm-hmm. one that connects us all. In this long journey of yours, which you've described so beautifully in God and Love on Route 80, if you're just joining us, Stephen G. Post has been our guest, and this is his new book, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness, a Mango 2019 release. What surprises have changed you? I mean, you know, it's not like everything is known, even if we know the unknown is sort of the knowing awareness, but what has really like gone, oh, my Lord, look at that. Well, one of the things was so in I you know I got to Stony Brook uh from 20 years in Shaker Heights, Ohio where we raised our family uh, and uh, uh that was in 2008. So in 2014 I got an invitation to go to back to Peconico Hills and the Union Church and give a lecture on the spirituality of Chagall. And it went really well. That night I drove home in the rain uh, and went over the Throgs Neck Bridge uh, down to Stony Brook. I got home, and I had an email from Duray Ahmad, who's a wonderful um, uh, feminist from Lahore, Pakistan. And she said, your website for the Institute had been completely taken down. And I went, and there was the flag that said Team DZ ISIS. And uh, I was the, that was the third website that they had taken down. They took down quite a lot of websites that fall. So then I thought, okay, what to do? And I asked my my board of trustees, and in, in many of whom are from Cleveland, but not all. And 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 we decided we would have an essay contest for young people all over the world, and we would ask them to write from the heart, you know, real existential essays about how they pushed back successfully against peer pressure to hate others just because they didn't share their beliefs. So we got thousands of these essays. There was, a, a, you know, there were cash awards, I must say. 
and we 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 looked at these things, we judged them, we picked out winners, and then lo and behold, at that time, I was co-chairing a UN project on um, uh, spirituality and sustainable development with the UN Population Fund, uh, and they got wind of this essay contest. So in in August of 2016, we filled the entire UN headquarters, okay, with young people from all over the world performing their essays about successfully affirming a shared humanity and the right kind of spirituality. And some of them acted these out with rap style lyrics, and some of them did, oh, it was, it was so varied, it was so creative. Uh, Pastor Otis Moss was there, uh, Oprah's mentor, uh, uh, one of the great uh, violinists in New York, Joanna Krasowska, who is a backup for the Emerson Quartet. She was there playing and had had a dream the night before of, of wearing a blue dress, and she actually wore a blue dress when she played the Bach Chacon that morning. So it was incredible. And, and it, the lesson was, you know, even though there are difficult times when you're absolutely shocked by that blotch of negativity, you have to expand the canvas. That's my whole philosophy of synchronicity. Just expand the canvas. It's like a Pollock painting. It doesn't do much for you when it's just a gob in the middle of the floor. But by the time he covers it over and extends it outwards with all these beautiful colors and vibrant energy and lines, it's a thing of great beauty and spirituality. And so that's what happened with the UN. And that's what I like to do with, with, with life when obstacles come. Just, you know, hang on to the journey. Um, uh, you know, there's always, uh, you know, the infinite mind is always down Route 80. Maybe, you you know, there's the hill or something and you can't see it. But, but, but the infinite mind is always there with a creative, loving, cherishing solution if we just have the heart for it. Yeah. Really true, and I love the way you say that kindness is contagious and that the positive effects of it are experienced in the brain of not just the person who does the act, but of everyone who witnesses a kind act. And this is why I wish Hollywood would get off their violence stem and mm -hmm. the news would stop being a murder blotter and actually start promoting the amazing things that are going on around the world that are really what I call part of the life economy. You know, after covering international affairs for 20 years, I came up with this term of that we live in a death economy where everything, you know, war on the agriculture, war on each other, war on spirit versus a life economy, which means we choose things that elevate life. And my good friend John Perkins has sort of grabbed that and taken it around the world, even to the G7. And I think sometimes about that, um, that when any of us, and I say this for any of us, have a good-hearted idea, give it away. Give it away. Closing remarks, we have about... 15 seconds. Well, it's good to be good, and science says it's so. And when you're a kid and you have a meaningful dream, you know, uh, don't be afraid to follow it uh, and, and just uh, go for uh, it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Stephen G. Post. www.stephengpost.com and www.unlimitedloveinstitute.org. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Kortner. Our engineer is Noah Dankner. I'm Dr. Zohar Hieronymus, and we hope you enjoyed the show. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.